It's Thursday, June 1st, 2023, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroida, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he's well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes weekly about the policy environment in the Golden State for California On Your Mind. Uh, Good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, Lee, let's begin by talking about your California on your mind column uh, from a few weeks ago. You explain uh, that San Francisco office space values have plunged 75% and its vacancy rates have risen from 4% in 2019 to nearly 30% today. Uh, in this podcast, we talk frequently about what ails San Francisco, but Lee, doesn't the plunge in office space values and occupancies present an opportunity to address the deficit of affordable housing in the city? and revive the local economy. Uh, Here's a solution. This space could potentially be converted to residential units, condominiums and apartments. Uh, Does that logic add up? Um, Jonathan, sadly it doesn't. Uh, And it's very ironic because we have, you know, the the space is there. There's there's four walls and and roofs uh, that are empty right now. and more will become empty over the next year or two. There are a lot of office buildings that are being sublet with those subleases coming up in one or two years. Um, so yeah, so you'd like to think that okay, well, you know, there's empty, you know, there's available office space. Housing in San Francisco is very expensive. Hey, let's let's convert some of these commercial buildings into residential buildings. But uh, it just doesn't work that way in San Francisco. Um, so here's what happened. Uh, the Union Bank building was put up for sale. Um, it sold for a 75% discount relative to its valuation four years ago and relative to what similar office buildings sold for four years ago. So that's you know, that's nothing short of you know, Great Depression. Um, or or worse than the Great Depression in the 1930s. That's just unheard of. Um, real estate declining 75%. Uh, and there were 30 bids that came in um, on the Union Bank building. Um, and it was right in the heart of downtown. And of those 30 bids, there wasn't one bid from a residential developer. And the big picture, long story short, is that uh, it just doesn't pencil out economically to take that office space and convert it into residential space, even at a 75% price discount. Mm -hmm. And the main reason is because the cost and the delays that are uh, implemented by the city are just incredibly expensive. And <clears throat> then the city further requires nearly one out of four units in a large development, and you know this would be a, a very large development, have to be set aside for low to moderate income tenants. Um, and so what that means is the developer would take a very large loss on one out of four units, which means that they have to make it up on, on the other three units. Um, and once you do the math, uh, the cost involved just simply doesn't make it profitable for developers to uh, to consider that. And to put it in perspective, um, one developer noted that 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 seventy five percent price drop 
it would it would have to drop another further 50% or more to economically justify that type of conversion. Um, so it's just, it's, again, this is San Francisco where simple economics just seems to fly over the head or perhaps fly under the radar of the city supervisors. Lee, if Jonathan told us right now that the stock of an alphabet company, if he told us right now that Google's stock was going down by 75% or Apple or Meta, you know, pick your stock, we would wait for that 75% drop that would be on the phone with our stockbrokers right away buying into it. Why? Because we'd be pretty sure that it's going to come roaring back. Here's the question though, Lee, with this, with this real estate so depressed, why aren't developers rushing in to buy? Because it would seem to me to be a buying opportunity. If they're not rushing in, leaders, I suggest that they just don't see a long-term fix to San Francisco. Because again, if I'm an investor, I think they're okay. If the city's going to rebound in five to 10 years, it's a good time to get on the ground floor. And these prices are incredibly depressed. Yeah, Bill, exactly. Exactly. So that's the <laughs> that's the type of economic logic that's really missing within those who govern San Francisco. So you're an investor, uh, you have you know millions of dollars to invest, and hey, we're talking about San Francisco, formerly one of the most desirable cities in the country. The tech capital, really, uh, you know, maybe next to Silicon Valley, one of the top two tech capitals of the world, San Francisco, up to 2019, if you are a tech company and you want to make a splash, then you have to have a presence in San Francisco. No ifs, ands, or buts. Now, nobody wants to be there. Um, so, Bill, you're absolutely right. People who are investing are looking at San Francisco and thinking, no, I don't see the city returning. Because investment is all about looking into the future. It's not just what you're going to get from the investment today, but in 2024, 2025, and so forth. So, People are looking for, investors are looking for economic reforms, social reforms regarding crime, regarding homelessness, regarding drug use, mm -hmm. uh, and they're not seeing those. So instead of that 75% drop being a remarkable buying opportunity that we're all running as fast as we can to buy up, what investors are saying is, you know, they're not going to risk their capital in making investments in a place where they have no confidence that San Francisco's political leaders are going to make sensible decisions in the future. So I'd point out, Lee, that you know Mayor London Breed is trying to do something here to her credit. She, she has a budget problem right now. San Francisco does two-year budgets. Uh, each budget is about $14 billion. So you're looking at $28 billion in all, and I think there's a $780 million hole. So it's about, what, 3.5%. It's not crippling, but it's a it's a problem. So how to backfill? Uh, the historical way to backfill is to raise taxes in San Francisco. And if you cut social services, there's holy hell. Uh, here's what London Breed is up to, Lee and Jonathan. In February, she proposed two categories of tax incentives to try to prevent more companies from bailing from downtown. Uh, one incentive would delay scheduled tax increases for bus many businesses. Uh, they're supposed to see this here. Another one of uh, the incentives would have give a tax break to companies that set up new offices in San Francisco. That sounds good. Now, here's the problem, Lee and Jonathan. Uh, the budget that uh, Mayor Breed uh, wrote out yesterday assumed that both of these tax incentives will be passed by the Board of Supervisors. It's going to cost the city about $15 million next year and about 22 in the following. But the presumption that she thinks this is going to pass, Lee, is a problem. The Board of Supervisors does not look favorably upon doing, doing favors for businesses. Um, especially because when you uh, take away this uh, tax incentive or actually give this tax incentive, what you're doing is you're uh, 
dipping into money that was um, uh, approved by voters in uh, in a tax in 2018 that goes to child care and early childhood education. So this means that Lee and Jonathan that San Francisco is going to make some very weighty decisions and uh, in a very progressive town whose inclinations are always to go toward the social safety net and not go to the entrepreneurial side. It's going to look at the entrepreneurial side and uh, kind of raise the question of what to do for businesses. And here I'm just not sure how she's going to get past the board of supervisors. So Breed is um, Mayor Breed has uh, has a much better sense of economic realism than the board of supervisors. Um, I mean, I'm inclined to think the board of supervisors is Scarlett O'Hare at the end of Gone <laughs> Gone with the Wind. <laughs> you know, right. you know, somehow living in another reality and thinking, oh well, everything will be okay, yeah. uh, and the supervisors are going to have to con- come to the, the come to the conclusion, Scarlett O'Hare, that. Maybe strangers will, will will help us out. I mean, there's there's really no other understanding of the decision making they're 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 considering right now. So Breed understands that San Francisco's become uncompetitive for businesses, is becoming uncompetitive for people to live there. He's trying to make it competitive. She's trying to make it competitive for businesses. Absolutely the correct decision. Absolutely the correct decision to reduce uh, the tax burden on businesses. Um, my sense uh, is that San Francisco is um, certainly one of the highest tax burden cities for commercial uh, in the country, potentially um, the most, uh, the, the highest tax burden. Um, New, New York probably be in that conversation. Chicago might be in that conversation. Mm-hmm. But what she's, what she's understanding now is that, hey, you know what? Um, I used to have every suitor in the country who wanted to come to my city. Now they're abandoning my city. I've got to make it more attractive. I need to go to the prom. <laughs> I got to get a date. Uh, I have to be competitive in that arena. Um, and the board of supervisors, they just they just simply aren't there. Um, and so, Bill, you mentioned a fourteen billion dollar budget. Uh, so when I said San Francisco must have some of the highest commercial tax burdens uh, in the country, I said that because San Francisco has, on a per person basis, by far the highest city budget. Um, now that's complicated a little bit because San Francisco is its own city and county. But but putting that aside, um, there's not any city that comes close to San Francisco on a per person spending um, spending measure. So what that tells me as economists is that something is extremely wrong. They're spending an awful lot of money per person. They're spending more than any other comparable city. They've got to figure out how to live within a budget. Uh, they've got to figure out how to make the city attractive to businesses. Um, they got to figure out how to how to fill up those office buildings that were once had just a 4% vacancy rate and now are 25 to 30% vacancy. So she's in a really difficult position. Uh, I mean, I feel for her. She understands what the economic reality is and she has a board of supervisors that, um, that still think... Um, yeah, you know, illegal drug use on the city streets, people passed out, um, people costing the city budget millions and millions of dollars a year, having uh, paramedics run out and reviving them from fentanyl overdoses with, uh, with Narcan, which reverses the effects of opioids. They still think that's just perfectly fine. Um, yeah. And all the attended problems that come with that, including crime, including homelessness. So, so she's, she's got a really difficult problem. 
She's running for re-election, Lee and Jonathan. She'll face a challenge from the left. Uh, some man or woman will be upset for reasons such as we mentioned about these tax incentives. They'll be upset with her because in a budget, Lee, uh, she wants to spend money on, more money on homelessness, which all San Franciscans applaud, but she wants to do it by dipping into Proposition C, which is another one of these tax increases put on the ballot by San Franciscans. This is a big uh, idea championed by Mark Benioff of Salesforce. Uh, the idea was this raise the corporate tax in San Francisco with proceeds used mostly for housing. She wants to use it for other homeless-related services. So once again, she'll have a fight on her hands. But Lee and Jonathan, the clock is ticking on her, and, the, and not just for her re-election, but also the Super Bowl is coming to San Francisco in February of 2026. And so, of course, that is uh, you know, ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, when, when America comes, the world comes to San Francisco to see that. So she has really about two and a half years to kind of turn around that city if she can. Uh, Lee, we've talked about commercial space. Can we talk a bit about the um, housing market for residents, homeowners in San Francisco. I'm seeing some alarming numbers when it comes to how soft the condo market is, how much uh, homeowners in San Francisco are losing in terms of equity right now. Yeah, uh, uh, Bill, property values are declining everywhere in San Francisco, not just among commercial space. Uh, the decline uh, among residential values um, is nearly 17% from the peak. Uh, that's much larger than the decline in um in the country as a whole, which is about 3.3% from the peak. And Bill, if you look at the decline in the rest of the country, that can probably be attributed perhaps completely to higher mortgage rates um, that have occurred since the housing since the housing price peak. So the country on a whole has fallen by 3.3%. San Francisco fell nearly another 13 and a half percentage points. And Bill, what that means is that San Francisco homeowners have collectively lost a $260 billion in residential retail value relative to the loss that have declined in the rest of the country. Um, so you look at San Francisco and there's an additional $260 billion lost in residential value. And Bill, when you look at that, um, I mean, that's just that's devastating from the standpoint of, uh, of tax revenues that come in if you're in government. It's devastating from the standpoint that, hey, prices are down because people are leaving. San Francisco's lost seven and a half percent of their population um, since, I believe, 2019. Um, now, people will say, oh, well, you know what? Other cities have lost their have lost people. And uh, hey, isn't this all the tech exodus? Well, San Francisco has lost a greater percentage than any city, um, I believe twice as much on a percentage basis as any city. And, um, you know, Bill, from an economic point of view, when you think about um, people leaving um, and the knee-jerk reaction being, oh, well, you know what, they're tech workers and they can work from home. Well, they could have worked from home remaining in San Francisco. I mean, nobody held a gun to their head and said, hey, move out of San Francisco. That was the choice. They could have continued living in San Francisco, working out of their San Francisco homes, but they've left. Um, and where and Bill, where are they going? Um, many moved um, to uh, the area of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, so it's not just San Francisco is an expensive place to live. And hey, we're leaving because we're trying to escape high housing costs. They're moving to areas that are expensive. Jackson Hole has a median home value. Uh, it might even be higher than the San Francisco median home value. I haven't, I haven't checked uh, recently, but um, as of a few months ago, it was higher. 
you know, they're moving to Miami Beach. Uh, they're moving to Lake Tahoe. These are all areas that are not low cost uh, places to live. Um, so you've got you've got enormous drops in residential values. Um, and Bill, when you think about crime, um, and my sense is that crime is a big part of this. Uh, think, you know, think about um, the Pacific Heights neighborhood in San Francisco. Um, think about Knob Hill in San Francisco. These are two of the most expensive neighborhoods in San Francisco. Uh, Pacific Heights is where Nancy Pelosi lives. Uh, it's where Julia Roberts lives. Um, and home values there have fallen $400,000 from the peak. Um, crime rates in Pacific Heights uh, is about, I believe, 40% higher than the national average. Uh, and this is supposed to be the, you know, the, the perhaps the safest neighbor in San Francisco. Well, on a comparative basis, I think it is. <laughs> it's, it, it may not be the safest, but it's among the safest. The problem is uh, that San Francisco has a crime rate that's over 100% higher than the national average. Um, so when you think about that and you think about how much does it cost to live here, it has become unsafe. The schools don't perform well. Um, taxes are incredibly high. It's hard to get anything done whether I want to build a home, even if I want to make major renovations, um, San Francisco just has a mare's nest of problems uh, and it's not going away. And Bill, when you mentioned Super Bowls coming, um, you know, the NFL uh, runs according to a clock of money and right. um, that city better be cleaned up um, or there's, a, I don't know what's going to happen if it's not. Um, but Bill, can you imagine having the Super Bowl there now? No, uh, but, you know, it's very funny. So the Super Bowl farms out its events. So what you might see is the Super Bowl might cleverly, the NFL might try to send more events down towards San Jose if it felt safer down there than San Francisco. But uh, there's one element to San Francisco, by the way, then we can move on to a new topic. And that is not just the issue of living in San Francisco, Lee and Jonathan, but getting to and from San Francisco. In addition to the many other problems in terms of real estate we've talked about, in terms of social services, crime, it also is facing a bona fide transportation crisis, a fiscal cliff that it's talking about the next couple of years. Uh, you look at the BART system, gentlemen, the subway system that goes through the Bay Area, very cutting edge of the 1970s. The problem is, is in today's economy with people not working and commuting to and from the city, BART is dying on the vine. And they're talking now about cutting back on lines and doing some lines like once an hour, you know, like an Amtrak uh, train running north and south on the East Coast. Um, it's not real public transportation. Lee, the showdown is going to be in all places Sacramento because San Francisco and other communities with transportation are looking for a bailout from Sacramento. I think they want a billion dollars a year for the next five years. And if you've looked at the fiscal situation in the state capital right now, they don't have money to give away. Well, um, no, they they don't have money to give away. They gave away a lot of money a year ago. Uh, what was the uh, what was the surplus last year? Was it uh, ninety seven billion dollars? I believe ninety seven billion dollars. Um, I don't know ninety seven billion dollars. A lot of money. Um, so poof, that's <laughs> that's gone. And now we're looking at um, what a thirty is it thirty two point six billion. In terms uh, of it's, at it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to look at because um, it's historically uh, you would know the exact deficit right now because all the revenue would have come in by April 15th. But because of um, last year's disasters, uh, a lot of communities like Santa Clara County, where I'm in, we're allowed to uh, send in our taxes this fall. And so the state's still kind of grouping around in the dark as to how much money it exactly has. And so when the governor put out the $32 billion figure, the, um, the uh, legislative analyst office said, well, it's $32 billion for now. 
now state too. And so it could be, it could be worse than 32 billion. Right. My sense is it's probably going to be worse than 32 billion. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And, um, you know, Bill, when you talk about um, the transit stuff, um, and in particular BART, so Bay Area Rapid Transit, um, you know, what, what, what strikes me is just uh, incredible is that um, Governor Newsom, I believe, approved 11 or $12 million to build, uh, not to build, but just for planning, for planning purposes for a new BART tunnel. Connecting, uh, connecting the Oakland Berkeley area with San Francisco, um, and it just it strikes me as incredible, is because BART ridership um, is down sixty five percent. Why are we thinking about expanding capacity when demand is down nearly two thirds? Um, you know, it's like I don't know where that decision came from. Um, but you know, in terms of a bailout for BART and for other transit systems. You know, Bill, as far as I can tell, BART has not been run particularly well. Um, the BART Inspector General um, resigned recently. She talked about fraud. She talked about conflict of interest. Writers have talked about crime. Um, uh, people have talked about um, BART doesn't do a very good job, uh, not just dealing with crime, but dealing with people who simply just hop the the fence and don't pay fares. Um, and this is really a bigger part of a problem within California in that, I mean, I can't think of a major, a major bureau within state or local government, within um, state government, local government that's run anything close to being efficient, anything close to being functional. Um, and BART really has become a poster child of saying, we need more money. Um, and a person who just was directing it said, I, I can't recommend that. There's fraud. There's conflict of interest. Um, the system is run horribly. It's not managed effectively. Um, so this is what we're coming with. And then Governor Newsom decides to spend eleven or twelve million dollars on planning on planning for more capacity on right. a system that is receiving two thirds less ridership. Uh, it's just I just don't know where that comes from. Yeah, it's interesting. It's the opposite of uh, Washington, D.C. and the metro system, which likewise was built in the 1970s uh, and is groaning under the weight of just a much larger Washington. Um, the system that was designed in the 70s was not built for this capacity it's facing right now. So it's trying to find ways to deal with too many riders, if you will. But, you know, it's interesting, Lee, uh, BART actually commissioned a survey of riders to ask them what are the key problems with BART as they see it. And they didn't say the cost of a ticket. They didn't say the frequency of trains. You know what they landed on, Lee? Landed on two things. Number one, cleanliness, and number two, safety. Plain and simple. People don't want to get on dirty cars. They don't want to get on cars where they feel menaced. So this gets to the yeah, yeah. this gets to the greater challenge of San Francisco. It's not just throwing money at the problem. It's really changing the culture of the way things are run. Yeah, it's it's organizational dysfunction. And if you yeah. believe the Bart uh, uh, Inspector General, uh, it goes deeper than that. I mean, she's so see, she's suggesting corruption and fraud within the system. And Bill, I'll just give you one more data point. I mean, this is not big money, but it gives you some insight into how badly BART is being run. Uh, BART spent $350,000 on, um, on a plan to reach out to the homeless. Um, I believe they ended up being in contact with, I think, one, <laughs> one homeless person who perhaps thought there was a giveaway to be had with that. Um, so again, you think about, what are the basics? People want to be safe. They want to have clean cars. Um, those are the basics. Uh, but what is what is BART doing? Um, they spent $350,000 for a homeless outreach program 
that make contact with one person to get into some type of a treatment facility. Uh, so, you know, again, emblematic of the state, uh, of state government, um, priority, what, what do people want? What are the priorities the government agencies should be delivering? Um, $350 to spend on getting one homeless person into treatment just seems like it should be way, way down on the list. I agree. Gentlemen, the um, the big national culture war story uh, this this week uh, what involved the Los Angeles Dodgers uh, of all organizations and their decision to invite, disinvite, and invite again the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, an LGBTQ advocacy and street performance organization in which its members don the habits of Catholic nuns and wear white face paint. Uh, the Sisters are supposed to receive a Community Hero Award on June 16th for, for promoting human rights, diversity, and spiritual enlightenment. Uh, this, of course, sparked outrage from the Los Angeles Catholic Archdiocese and prompted Dodgers ace uh, Clayton Kershaw to lobby for a Faith and Family Day at Dodger Stadium at a later date. Um, it seems surprising that a decisively progressive city like Los Angeles would be at the center of the culture wars. Uh, among registered voters in Los Angeles, the share of Democrats outnumbers Republicans 52 to 17 percent. Latinos represent nearly 40 percent of all registered voters in the county, a majority of whom it can be presumed support the Democratic Party. Could it be that the Dodgers' vacillation on this issue may have something to do with the Catholic Church's influence in Latino communities? Uh, Bill? Um, it might. I, I, I think you know, it's a tricky story in this regard. First of all, the Dodgers. So the Dodgers on June 16th have what they call Pride Night to celebrate inclusiveness. And they invited the Los Angeles chapter of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence to take part. And then all hell broke loose and uh, some conservative groups protested their presence. And so the Dodgers disinvited them. All hell broke loose again, and the Dodgers reversed course yet again and reinvited them. So here we are now, which prompted Clayton Kershaw and some other players who are very Christian uh, to say they objected. Why do they object? Because the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, while they do a lot of good community work, um, they also outraged some people. The group describes itself um, as a uh, quote, um, quote, a quote, leading edge order of queer and trans nuns. Uh, for people who take their religion seriously, especially Catholics, uh, it rankles them to see men dressed up as nuns and essentially mocking the faith. Um, I think one thing that's a reminder of is that we look at these woke issues in California. I want to say because California is decidedly blue in its voting habits, progressive. Uh, it's not always that reliably progressive on these social issues. And uh, not to get too far off track, but if we go back to the great debate we had over Proposition 8 in this state, that was the Defense of Marriage Initiative. And the assumption was it would go on the ballot, but because it was put on by a group of conservatives, it would get wiped out at the ballot by progressive voters. In fact, Proposition 8 passed. And why did it pass? And by its passage, it defined marriage as between an act, uh, an act between a man and a woman, not same-sex couple. Uh, it passed in part because the organizers' um, strategy backfired. They assumed that Black voters in California would vote for it en masse because they'd see it as a civil rights issue. And what they didn't count on was that for some Black voters in California, this offended their religious beliefs. And so I think this kind of reminds me of the Prop 8 debate in that regard, in that you can you know, have Pride Night and that's fine, but then you trot out the sisters and your conservative fans, your Christian fans, your Catholic fans, they might find offense to it. I I just, I don't like political correctness in baseball. I think baseball is a great time out to go enjoy a sport for two and a half hours. And so teams that do this, I just kind of, yeah, I kind of cringe. Interesting, by the way, the Dodgers and the Giants got together last year and celebrated pride in San Francisco. They wore pride caps, but this is, I think, kind of a different animal that, that the Dodgers are after. I, I don't know, Lee, what do you think? Well, I, I was um, I was remarkably surprised about this because um, 
you know, we had, uh, you know, from an economic point of view, this just ends up looking a lot like what Anheuser-Busch did um, yeah. a couple of months ago. So, um, so they reached out um, to, I guess, you know, a social media influencer named uh, Dylan Mulvaney, who is a transgender um, mm-hmm. male to female. And uh, Budweiser made a big promotion about, uh, I think they created a special can of Bud Light for Dylan Mulvaney. Right. And of course, they were thinking that, um, hey, you know what, we'll connect with the demographic that is uh, tends to be much younger than the average Bud Light drinker, um, uh, much politically. But, uh, but in thinking about connecting with that demographic, um, I mean, everybody knows what happened with that. It was a complete disaster. Um, Anheuser-Busch's stock values dropped about 20%, uh, which is just uh, an enormous fall. The marketing person who was responsible for that, um, I think they're on leave. I suspect they, they won't ever be back. Um, but Bill, you know, uh, the person who did that at Anheuser-Busch, when she, was, um, when she was interviewed for this, she just really created even more of a problem. She said, you know what? Um, Bud Light is uh, becoming irrelevant uh, and it's old fashioned and uh, it's very stale. And it was fundamentally important that we get out to a different segment of the population. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, that's all fine. Uh, Bud Light actually, I think, was still the number one leading <laughs> light beer, uh, not that it was becoming irrelevant. But then it, it, the Dodgers sort of, in my view, they kind of did the same thing here. Um, they want to connect with as broad of a constituency and get as many people in the ballpark as they can. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to reach out to the LGBT community, you can do that without inviting uh, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, um, not casting any judgment on that group. Um, my understanding, I, I, I had, uh, to be honest, I'd never heard of them before, right. before, before this whole thing happened. So I'm kind of guessing a lot of people never heard of them. Um, so you can do an awful lot to, to connect and try to market yourself to different, different groups. Um, but you don't have to do it without, uh, you know, without pissing a lot of other people off. And, um, you know, to get to Jonathan's question, um, yeah, 40% of Los Angeles is Latino. That probably means 95% Catholic. Um, so why go there is, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, why go there? Yeah, it's interesting. This might also be just as simple as difference between Los Angeles and San Francisco and Northern California and Southern California. Uh, to go to a Giants game in San Francisco is really to be as it is in downtown San Francisco. It's really to embrace San Francisco. And I dare say that they could have a pride night and a bunch of men in drag dressed up as nuns could come out on the field. and Everybody would cheer and have a good time. I just don't think that plays as easily in San Francisco. I just don't think that that community is quite as campy, for lack of a better word, as San Francisco is on this topic. By the way, I note that San Francisco League, getting back to our discussion about the economy, the city has put out a new tourism ad. And it's very interesting. You look inside the ad, there are three drag queens dancing down the Castro advertising the city. So, again, this is how San Francisco sees itself. But maybe Los Angeles just doesn't. Also, final note on this, Dodger Stadium is just kind of a unique little island to itself. Uh, I'll tell you a funny anecdote. Then we can move on. I was uh, at a ball game there many, many years ago. And this is so long ago that actually you use cash to buy things. And I took out some cash out of my wallet to buy a Dodger dog and a Coke and dropped my wallet on the ground and went back to my seat. And about five minutes later, discovered to my horror, I didn't have my wallet and just had an immediate panic attack. Thinking, my God, my life is ruined. I went back to the hot dog stand and guess what? They had my wallet. 
Oh, this you know what? Is, uh, this I, is how Dodger Stadium operates. Just there are people who walk around the concourse and are constantly sweeping up and keeping everything clean. It's kind of like Disneyland for baseball in that regard. So again, just maybe the outside world intruding on baseball. And again, maybe it's just, you know, you can celebrate pride and that's fine. We should all celebrate it. But um, to bring in a bunch of men dressed up as nuns, that just might be a step too far for, and the Dodgers just didn't simply think this through. Uh, they didn't think it through. And then they, uh, you know, they did it and then they walked it back and they did yeah. it again, which um, just sounds like a complete fiasco. Um, and Bill, I agree with you entirely. I think uh, no matter where people are on the political spectrum, you pay money to go watch a baseball game or a ballet performance or the opera or a concert. And that's what you're going for. Um, you'd like to get a little bit of break from the rest of the world that we live in and all the crazy political and cultural and social stuff, no matter where you are on that spectrum. Um, you want to get you want to get away from that. Um, that's what you go to the ballpark for. Um, the Dodgers, uh, no pun intended, um, they dropped the ball on this one. That's why I watch the NBA playoffs, Lee, because none of this stuff permeates National Basketball Association action. I'm oh, heck no. Heck no. Let's, uh, yeah, NBA in China. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, yeah, that's that's another podcast. Yes. Bill, in your column this week for California on your mind, you explained that for Governor Newsom, uh, the options to appoint an interim replacement for the visibly frail U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein are somewhat limited. Should she decide to leave her post before the November 2024 election, uh, why? Because more than two years ago, he declared that he would choose a black woman to fill her seat. Uh, as you mentioned, Oprah Winfrey's spokesperson shot down the Senator Oprah trial balloon. Uh, Bill, who else could be in the running um, for Governor Newsom's pick that would fit this criteria? Should she step down? Well, it won't be me and it won't be Leo Hanian for obvious reasons. Uh, we don't quite qualify along lines of gender and race. Uh, first of all, a shout out to the good senator. Uh, we're recording this on the 1st of June, three weeks from today. She turns 90. So congratulations, Senator Feinstein. But here's the problem for Governor Newsom on this, because he did, did narrow this down to has to be a black woman and nothing else. It takes a lot of qualified people off the field right away. In my column, I suggested two people who would make a lot of sense. One is Leon Panetta, uh, who is a former congressman, a former director of OMB, a former White House chief of staff, a former secretary of defense. He'd be a pretty good freshman senator. I think we'd all agree, but he doesn't qualify, obviously. I also uh, would be a fan of the scenario where if Senator Feinstein were to step down, that Governor Newsom would point Nancy Pelosi to take her place. Why? Uh, Nancy Pelosi is no spring chicken either. I think she turned uh, 84 earlier this year. Maybe she's going to leave the House next year. This would be kind of a nice way for her to end, up, end her career at the flourish, if you will. But she qualifies only on one of the two counts. And so who does that leave him with? He could go to London Breed. But as we mentioned, she is up for re-election. For her to bail on San Francisco at this point would really be just, I think, a really terrible thing to do. He could turn to Karen Bass, who is the new mayor of Los Angeles. She's a black woman. Problem here, though, is Governor Newsom did not endorse her last year when she was running against uh, Rick Caruso. He just stayed out of it. I'm sure Karen Bass will remember this. Uh, who else could he pick? He could pick Barbara Lee, the congresswoman from the Bay Area, but she's announced that she's running for it in the primary next year. So I don't think Newsom would want to give her a leg up, uh, especially because he's close to Pelosi and Pelosi supports Adam Schiff, who's also in the race. Now you're looking at Malia Cohen, who's the uh, state controller, uh, Shirley Weber, the secretary of state uh, as possibilities. So I decided, OK, just enough of this. And we're going to be really silly and just kind of go with the giddy pick, because ultimately that's what Oprah is. She's kind of a giddy pick. Why not somebody else living in Montecito, Lee? She lives about two miles away from uh, Oprah. Oprah has sat down and interviewed her. This particular woman is very active in social issues. We think she might be politically oriented. Lee, do you know who I'm talking about? 
Bill, are you referring to Miss Megan? The Duchess herself, yes. <laughs> the Duchess, yes, the Duchess. Well, um, yeah, I guess she's she's Oprah Junior. She they're they're great friends. Um, yeah, uh, you know what? I'm <laughs> Bill. After that, um, after that discussion, I'm almost speechless from the standpoint that uh, <laughs> politically, I, I, uh, I at some level, I, I understand what Newsom is doing by saying, "Okay, I'm going to appoint a black woman." Right. If you look at the national stage, um, yes. if you look at the California stage, um, blacks in California, they're down to about 5% of the population. From California, you would have thought that if he wanted to play pure identity politics, he would have gone with an Hispanic woman. Um, but he picked but he picked a Hispanic male. He picked Alec Padilla when Kamala Harris uh, took over the vice presidency. So he's made a Hispanic pick. So now he had to go back and you know, reverse course. And there was a lot of, he got some grief when he picked Padilla because remember Barbara Boxer and Feinstein and Harris held that seat going back to 1992. So he broke the streak of women holding it. And so I think he played the two for game. He went both black and he went both, uh, both female. You know, it's interesting when you look at the, uh, these stories coming down on Feinstein right now, and uh, you might think this is just nasty partisan politics, Republicans just making your life miserable. This is all coming from left folks. Uh, the New York Times ran a story over the weekend uh, that was just really kind of devastating and portrayed uh, Senator Feinstein as just really not in charge of her faculties. It uh, uh, decided an anecdote of about a year ago where she's on the floor of the Senate and Kamala Harris was presiding over the Senate in her capacity as the tie-breaking vote. And Feinstein could not figure out what how, what Harris was doing in the Senate. So that uh, the nation, the very left-leaning nation, had an article out yesterday pointing out uh, how uh, in Texas, the attorney general, uh, Ken Paxton, was run out of his job because his staffers basically ratted him out. And they're asking, why don't Feinstein's staffers do the same to her, call her out for just being in no condition to be a senator? So this is about the left trying to force her out, plain and simple. Not the right, but the left here, folks. And why would the yeah, left? Yeah, totally. Yeah, right. yeah. It's all about the left trying to push her out. And, um, you know, Bill, you... You have a much deeper perspective on her um, political career than I do, but uh, but uh, what I really respect about Feinstein is that um, she understood the value of bipartisan negotiations and bipartisan deals and bipartisan accomplishments. Um, and I think she, to my knowledge, she worked in good faith uh, with the Republican Party. She had a good understanding of what California needed from the standpoint of um, of water issues and the fact that. You know, she made a speech once where she said, hey, California hasn't had a major water investment since the California Water Project was prematurely finished in 1972. Yeah, she was absolutely spot on. Right. Something that no other Democrat was saying, certainly not Jerry Brown when he was uh, when he was up for re-election. And he was talking about, hey, anybody who talks about that is silly. This is all about climate change. Well, you know, Feinstein hit it right in the head. Um yeah. So you have an old school Democrat, um, and I don't, I don't mean old in terms of race, but just old school Democrat from the standpoint of uh, the time of Bill Clinton and the time of, uh, of other Democrats back in the day who understand we work with the other side, we find common ground, uh, we make a deal where everybody gets something and we move the country forward. And that's just not where the left is anymore. No, it's not. But, you know, this issue is not going to go away anytime soon, as long as just these outlets keep writing these stories about her. And keep in mind, she's in that job until November of 2024. So that's what, another 15 months from now in terms of the Senate's work. So it's not like she'd be an absentee senator at the time. She has to be around, but it gets further complicated. And this is where the Republicans do um, play a role in this. 
if she were to leave the Senate, um, the Republicans might very well refuse to put a replacement on the uh, on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Why? That would deadlock the committee and make it very difficult for Democrats to uh, uh, to pass any nominee at their own disposal. They'd have to pick compromise nominees. It would really slow down the nomination process in the Senate. So here we have just uh, we have another fine mess, Ollie, don't we? <laughs> where you, where you're kind of damned if she does and damned if she doesn't. Do you really want her staying in the Senate in her diminished capacity? On the other hand, do you want her to step down and create that problem in the Judiciary Committee? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Bill, I can't help but think um, that, I mean, when you play identity politics, um, you're, all, you know, if you play identity politics, you're always going to say, oh, this person is incredibly highly qualified. And they also have to be a Black woman or uh, a male Hispanic or uh, a transgender Asian or, you know, what have you. But um, you look at the record of uh, identity politics um, appointments, and um, it's not one that, in my opinion, just from the standpoint of economics, is is a particularly good one. Uh, I mean, I look at Padilla's record. Uh, from the standpoint of economic policies, he's on the wrong side of that. Um, so it would be wonderful if, if the governor said, I'm going to find a remarkably well-qualified person who's going to really advance uh, California's presence and advance the nation. Um, but instead he went, okay, black woman, um, and Bill, you've worked your way down the list of candidates and where we're, where we're winding up is that's just Megan Markle. So yes. that, that says something about, that says something about the whole process. Well, unless he put, chooses somebody from the sisters of perpetual indulgence, but now we're into a whole nother conversation about womanhood and so forth. But uh, you do raise a serious point here, Lee, and that is California's place in the United States Senate. Historically, uh, states operate best when they have two senators who kind of approach your jobs differently. One is kind of the visionary senator, big picture, global thinker, and the other one's what we call a pothole senator. He or she tends to state business. New York State was a great example of this in the 1980s when they had Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who, of course, at all times was thinking great, huge thoughts, and Alphonse D'Amato, who had, was not shy about holding up things in the Senate to make sure that New York got its fair share. California doesn't have that right now, and this is part of what it misses in Feinstein's diminished capacity. For years, she was the person you turned to, and I know this having worked for a California governor. If you had a problem in Washington that needed Senate action, you didn't go to Barbara Boxer, you went to Dianne Feinstein, and she generally delivered. But right now, I'm not sure she's capable of that. I don't know exactly what Alex Padilla does in the Senate on a daily basis. Um, so there's really a question of how California is looked for. And that's why I go back to the model of someone like a Pelosi or a Panetta, who, yes, they also are advanced in their age, but they know how Congress works. And so they could just very simply get legislation shepherd which is all you need really for a placeholder candidate because you do have an election coming out in November 2024 and then let the voters decide what they do want to do in terms of this, uh, you know, identity politics. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, Kevin Kiley in the House of Representatives has been very critical of Newsom on this regard. He's saying just put it up for an election right now. Uh, problem with that is it would be very expensive. Um yeah, I, I think that's a terrible idea. It would be expensive. That person would get in the job for 12 months. They might get swept out. Now, keep in mind, it would be that because we have a March primary uh, in 2024, not a June primary. So you do an election right now, they'd have to turn, they'd have to turn around. They would never go to Washington. They'd just stay in California and run for uh, that's right. It would be a quick U-turn. Um, and Bill, your um, your idea about Panetta, yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, it, you know, but Bill, I think what would have, uh, sadly, even if, Leon Panetta was a black woman, but otherwise was entirely the same as Leon Panetta, uh, the white male, um, old school Democrat. Uh, I don't think there's really room for him anymore in that party. Uh, mm -hmm. I hope I'm wrong about that. 
but it's a uh, it's a sad statement. And the whole country loses one that. And there's another old school Democrat he could turn to, and that would be Jerry Brown. But he has a very strange relationship with Jerry Brown, and Jerry Brown is not a modern Democrat by any means. He is from a different generation, so he's also an old school Democrat. So Newsom would get a backlash. He would get a very woke backlash if he put someone like Jerry or even Nancy Pelosi, for that matter. Um, yes. And, you know, Bill, you mentioned uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan from back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I pine away for the uh, for the lack of supply of politicians uh, at that level. Um, I think we were fortunate to have people like that as public servants. Um, if only if only we had one or two like that, uh, one or two more like that. Well, I would wager that Meghan Markle would take that job in a heartbeat if it were offered. Why? She and her husband need to kind of figure out their next act. And I can think of a few things better suited for a bunch of Netflix cameras to follow them around that Megan takes on Washington. Megan takes on Washington. And uh, by the time the election came around, uh, I'm afraid she would still be asking. Um, so what's an appropriations committee <laughs> and which way is the restroom? Well, as always, gentlemen, this has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Lee. Good to see you, fellas. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. And Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California on Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroidis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.